Section 14 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Tartar Invasion of China by Meha, B.C. 341. By Demetrius Charles Bulger. The first Chinese are supposed to have been a nomad tribe in the provinces of Shenxi, which lies in the northwest of China, and among them at last appeared the ruler for he whose name at least has been preserved his deeds and his person are mythical but he is credited with giving his country its first regular institutions the analysts of the chinese chronicles place the date of the creation at a point of time two millions of years before confucius this interval they filled up with lines of dynasties. Preceding the Chao dynasty, the chronicles give ten epochs. Prior to the eighth of these, there is no authentic history. Yu Chao She, the nest-having, taught the people to build huts of the boughs of trees. Fire was discovered by Sai Jin She, the fire producer. Fu He, B.C. 2862, was the discoverer of iron, with Yao Wu, B.C. 2356, is the period whence Confucius begins his history. He says of that epoch, The house door could safely be left open. Yao Wu greatly extended and strengthened the empire, and established fairs and marts over the land. One of China's most notable rulers was Qin Chi Huangti, who was studious in providing for the security of his empire, and with this object began the construction of a fortified wall across the northern frontier to serve as a defense against the troublesome Hyongnu tribes who are identified with the Huns of Attila. This wall, which he began in the first years of his reign, about the close of the 3rd century BC, was finished before his death. It still exists, known as the Great Wall of China, and has long been considered one of the wonders of the world. Every third man of the whole empire was employed on this work. It is said that 500,000 of them died of starvation. The contents of the Great Wall would be enough to build two walls six feet high and two feet thick around the equator. It is the largest artificial structure in the world, carried for 1,400 miles over height and hollow reaching in one place the level of 5,000 feet, nearly one mile above the sea. Earth, gravel, brick and stone were used in its construction. 
the weak successors of Huang Ti, finally gave way to the usurper, Cao Tzu, who had been originally the ruler of a small town, and had borne the name of Liu Pang. The reign of Cao Tzu was distinguished by the consolidation of the empire, the connection of western and eastern China by high walls and bridges, some of which are still in perfect condition, and the institution of an elaborate code of court etiquette. His attention to these things was, however, rudely interrupted by an eruption of the Hyongnu Tartars. The death of Tsin Chi Huangti proved the signal for the outbreak of disturbances throughout the realm. Within a few months, five princes had founded as many kingdoms, each hoping, if not to become supreme, at least to remain independent. Meng Tian, beloved by the army and at the head, as he tells us in his own words, of 300,000 soldiers, might have been the arbiter of the empire. But a weak feeling of respect for the imperial authority induced him to obey an order sent by Yul Chi, Huang Ti's son and successor, commanding him to drink the waters of eternal life. Yul Chi's brief reign of three years was a succession of misfortunes. The reins of office were held by the Yunuk Chao Kao, who first murdered the minister Li Sep and then Yul Chi himself. Ying Wang, a grandson of Huang Ti, was the next and last of the Qin emperors. On coming to power, he at once caused Chao Kao, whose crimes had been discovered, to be arrested and executed. This vigorous commencement proved very transitory, for when he had enjoined nominal authority during six weeks, Ying Wang's troops, after a reverse in the field, went over in a body to Li Yu Pang, the leader of the rebel force. Ying Wang put an end to his existence, thus terminating in a manner not less ignominious than any of its predecessors, the dynasty of the Tsins, which Huang Ti had hoped to place permanently on the throne of China, and to which his genius gave a luster far surpassing that of many other families who had enjoyed the same privilege during a much longer period. The crisis in the history of the country had afforded one of those great men who rise periodically from the ranks of the people to give law to nations the opportunity for advancing his personal interests at the same time that he made them appear to be identical with the public will. Of such geniuses, if the test applied be the work accomplished, there have been few with higher claims to respectful and admiring consideration than Li Yu Pang, who, after the fall of the Tsins, became the founder of the Han dynasty under the style of Cao Tzu. 
Originally the governor of a small town, he had, soon after the death of Huang Ti, gathered round him the nucleus of a formidable army, and while nominally serving under one of the greater princes, he scarcely affected to conceal that he was fighting for his own interest. On the other hand, he was no mere soldier of fortune, and the moderation which he showed after victory enhanced his reputation as a general. The path to the throne being thus cleared, the successful general became emperor. His first act was to proclaim an amnesty to all those who had borne arms against him. In a public proclamation, he expressed his regret at the suffering of the people from the evils which follow in the train of war. During the earlier years of his reign, he chose the city of Luoyang as his capital, now the flourishing and populous town of Honan, but at a later period he removed it to Singanfu, in the western province of Xianxi. His dynasty became known by the name of the small state where he was born, and which had fallen early in his career into his hands. Cao Tzu sanctioned or personally undertook various important public works, which in many places still exist to testify to the greatness of his character. Prominent among those must be placed the bridges constructed along the great roads of western China. Some of them are still believed to be in perfect condition. No act of Cao Tzu's reign places him higher in the scale of sovereigns than the improvement of the roads and the construction of those remarkable bridges. Cao Tzu loved splendor and sought to make his receptions and banquets imposing by their brilliance. He drew up a special ceremonial which must have proved a trying ordeal for his courtiers, and dire was the offense if it were infringed in the smallest particular. He kept up festivities at Singanfu for several weeks, and on one of these occasions he exclaimed, Today I feel I am emperor, and perceive all the difference between a subject and his master. Cao Tzu's attention was rudely summoned away from these trivialities, by the outbreak of revolts against his authority and by inroads on the part of the Tartars. The latter were the more serious. The disturbances that followed Huang Ti's death were a fresh inducement to these clans to again gather round a common head and prey upon the weakness of China, for Cao Tzu's authority was not yet recognized in many of the tributary states which had been fain to admit the supremacy of the great Tsin Emperor. About this time the Hyongnu Tartars were governed by two chiefs in particular, one named Tonggu, the other Meha or Mehe. Of these, the former appears to have been instigated by a reckless ambition, or an overweening arrogance, and at first it seemed that the forbearance of Meha would allow his pretensions to pass unchallenged. Meha's successes followed rapidly upon each other. 
issuing from the desert and marching in the direction of China, he wrested many fertile districts from the feeble hands of those who held them, and while establishing his personal authority on the banks of the Huang Ho, his lieutenants returned laden with plunder from expeditions into the rich provinces of Shanxi and Shezhuan. He won back all the territory lost by his ancestors to Huangti and Mengtian, and he paved the way to greater success by the siege and capture of the city of Maie, thus obtaining possession of the key of the road to Qinyang. Several of the border chiefs and of the emperor's lieutenants, dreading the punishment allotted to China to want of success, went over to the Tartars and took service under Meha. The emperor, fully aroused to the gravity of the danger, assembled his army and, placing himself at its head, marched against the Tartars. Encouraged by the result of several preliminary encounters, the emperor was eager to engage Meha's main army, and after some weeks searching and maneuvering, the two forces halted in front of each other. Cao Tzu, imagining that victory was within his grasp, and believing the stories brought to him by spies, of the weakness of the Tartar army, resolved on an immediate attack. He turned a deaf ear to the cautious advice of one of his generals, who warned him that, in war, we should never despise an enemy and marched in person at the head of his advance guard to find the Tartars. Meha, who had been at all these pains to throw dust in the emperor's eyes and to conceal his true strength, no sooner saw how well his stratagem had succeeded, and that Cao Tzu was rushing into the trap so elaborately laid for him. Then, by a skillful movement, he cut off his communications with the main body of his army, and, surrounding him with an overwhelming force, compelled him to take refuge in the city of Pingqing in Shanxi. With a very short supply of provisions and hopelessly outnumbered, it looked as if the Chinese emperor could not possibly escape the grasp of the desert chief. In this strait, one of his officers suggested as a last chance that the most beautiful virgin in the town should be discovered and sent as a present to mollify the conqueror. Cao Tzu seized at this suggestion as the drowning man will catch at a straw and the story is preserved, though her name has passed into oblivion of how the young Chinese girl entered into the plan and devoted all her wits to charming the Tartar conqueror. She succeeded as much as their fondest hopes could have led them to believe, and Meha permitted Cao Tzu, after signing an ignominious treaty, to leave his place of confinement and rejoin his army, glad to welcome the return of the emperor, yet without him helpless to stir a hand to effect his release. Meha retired to his own territory, well satisfied with the material results of the war and the rich booty 
which he had obtained in the sack of Chinese cities, while Cao Tzu, like the ordinary type of an oriental ruler, vented his discomfiture on his subordinates. The closing acts of war were the lavishing of rewards on the head of the general to whose warnings he had paid no heed, and the execution of the scouts who had been misled by the wiles of Meha. The success which had attended this incursion and the spoil of war were potent inducements to the Tartars to repeat the invasion. While Cao Tzu was meditating over the possibility of revenge and considering schemes for the better protection of his frontier, the Tartars, disregarding the truce that had been concluded, retraced their steps and pillaged the border districts with impunity. In this year, B.C. 199, they were carrying everything before them, and the emperor, either unnerved by recent disaster or appalled at the apparently irresistible energy of the followers of Meha, remained apathetic in his palace. The representations of his ministers and generals failed to rouse him from his stupor, and the weapon to which he resorted was the abuse of his opponent, and not his prompt chastisement. Meha was a wicked and faithless man, who had risen to power by the murder of his father, and one of whom oaths and treaties carried no weight. In the meanwhile, the Tartars were continuing their victorious career. The capital itself could not be pronounced safe from their assaults or from the insult of their presence. In this crisis, counsels of craft and dissimulation alone found favor in the emperor's cabinet. No voice was raised in support of the bold and only true course of going forth to meet the national enemy. The capitulation of Ping Ching had for the time destroyed the manhood of the race, and Cao Tzu held in esteem the advice of men widely different to those who had placed him on the throne. Cao Tzu opened fresh negotiations with Meha, who concluded a treaty on the condition of the emperor's daughter being given to him in marriage, and on the assumption that he was an independent ruler. With these terms Cao Tzu felt obliged to comply, and thus for the first time this never-ceasing collision between the tribes of the desert and the agriculturists of the plains of China closed with the admitted triumph of the former. The contest was soon to be renewed with different results, but the triumph of Meha was beyond question. The weakness thus shown against a foreign foe brought its own punishment in domestic troubles. The palace became the scene of broils, plots and counterplots and so badly did Cao Tzu manage his affairs at this epoch, that one of his favorite generals raised the standard of revolt against him, through apparently a mere misunderstanding. In this instance Cao Tzu easily put down the rising, but others followed, which, if not pregnant with danger, were at the least extremely troublesome. 
The murder of Han Sen, to whose aid Cao Tzu owed his elevation to the throne, as much as to any other, by order of the Empress, during a reception at the palace, shook confidence still more in the ruler, and many of his followers were forced into open rebellion, through dread of personal danger. What wonder that, as he had said, the very name of revolt inspired Cao Tzu with apprehension. In B.C. 195, we find Cao Tzu going out of his way to visit the tomb of Confucius. Shortly after this event, it became evident that he was approaching his end. His eldest son, Hiao Hoi, was proclaimed heir apparent. Cao Tzu died in the 53rd year of his age, having reigned as emperor during eight years. The close of his reign did not bear out all the promise of its commencement, and the extent of his authority was greatly curtailed by the disastrous effects of the war with the Tartars and the subsequent revolts among his generals. Despite these reverses, there remains much in favor of his character. He had performed his part in the consolidations of the Huns. It remained for those who came after him to complete what he left half-finished. Under Hoi Ti, the Tartar king Meha sent an envoy to the capital, but either the form or the substance of his message enraged the empress mother, who ordered his execution. The two peoples were thus again brought to the brink of war, but eventually the difference was sunk for the time, and the Chinese chroniclers have represented that the satisfactory turn in the question was due to Meha saying the error of his ways. Not long afterward, the Tartar king died, and was succeeded by his son, Lao Chang. Meha's letter of excuse is thus given. In the barbarous country which I govern, both virtue and the decencies of life are unknown. I have been unable to free myself from them, and therefore I blush. China has her wise men. That is a happiness which I envy. They would have prevented my being wanting in the respect due to your rank. End of section 14